Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, we have our first giveaway. But before we get to that, we're going to take a look at Google's offerings from this week, and then we're going to take a dive into a pair of Lenovo tablets that keep busy during their downtime. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week I had a comparison queued up on the old calendar, and then I realized that a comparison wouldn't really work, so I switched it to a review, but then I mashed it back up into a comparison, and folks, I don't know what I came out with, but one thing I can tell you for sure is that we've got our first giveaway from the podcast, which is super exciting, and we'll get to that. But first, we have to dive into the news of the week. Before we get started, I have a couple of announcements to make. The first is that the fourth edition of the Doubting Thomas Monthly Recap is now live on Patreon for all of you generous souls who help support the show. And on Wednesday of next week, it's going out to the general audience in the normal podcast feed for the first time. This is a project that co-producer Cliff and I have been working on for the past few months, and it's always a great conversation to put a little extra meat on the bones of our top stories of the month and some other stories that weren't top stories but were still significant. Patrons will have early access going forward while the rest of y'all will get it about a week later. Also, since we reached the end of the month, this is a reminder that the full interviews for Russell Holly and Sam Gong are now available to everyone on my Patreon feed. If you want to get a few more nuggets about VR or graphene, head on over to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. Once again, you do not have to be a patron to hear the full interviews, but I keep them there because I don't want to clutter up this podcast feed. And finally, for the announcements, I wanted to let you know that plans are underway for some video content from this channel. (gasps) Video content? Yes, video content. Well, sort of, because we're starting with TikTok. No, I won't be doing silly dances or lip syncing, but I am going to be playing with some cool stuff, and TikTok will be my way to show you what I can't show you on an audio podcast. Plus, I don't see any reason why I can't show you some other projects I'm working on in the freelance space as well, so download TikTok while you still can, and search up Benefit of the Doubt. There aren't any videos there yet, but subscribe or follow or whatever you do on TikTok, I'm not even sure, and you'll start getting some juicy me content. That came out wrong. And by the way, YouTube is coming along as well, along with a new monthly series, so stay tuned for all of it. And now, we can get to the news. One criticism that Google has faced from certain app developers... (coughs) Epic! is that forcing users to download a whole separate app store under their phones puts an unjustifiable burden on users. And all of this just so Epic can save 30% and Google says, yes, yes, we absolutely agree, pay up. Well, the EU doesn't really see it that way and other app developers don't really see it that way either. Apparently it's just too hard to flip that unknown sources switch. So Google said this week that starting with Android 12, Google is going to make it easier to install third-party app stores because frankly, Cutting down on the whining coming from Tim Sweeney is worth a little extra developer effort to Google, and frankly, I agree. 
I'm not sure I like the way that this could very easily go and spin out of control, but for now, at least starting next year, third-party app stores will be fair game. Now, how Google will actually make it easier than flipping an unknown source of Switch, I have no idea, but apparently Google has some thoughts, and we'll find out what those are next May. You might be looking forward to the OnePlus 8T Pro coming out in mid-October. Well, don't! Because Pete Lau of OnePlus confirmed via Twitter that there will be no OnePlus 8T Pro this year and suggested that users take a look at the OnePlus 8 Pro if they want a, air quotes, pro-level device. This is a pretty big departure from OnePlus, who's been stuck in this six-month cycle for years now. So it's actually kind of refreshing to know that OnePlus isn't just like... I don't know, going to add 10% more battery and then charge another $900 for it. So will this be the future of OnePlus announcements? Honestly, at this point, who can tell? I kind of like the idea of a normal and pro phone in the spring and then just a refresh of a normal in the fall. Actually, I don't even like the refresh of the normal in the fall, but whatever. If you get the normal phone, you don't have quite so much invested so that it's not really jarring when a newer and prettier phone comes out. After all, you already settled for the non-pro version, so it'll be easier not to pick up the non-pro refresh six months later. And yes, I just used the phrase settled when talking about OnePlus, and yes, that was intentional. Deal with it, bro. Amazon is testing a new way to make payments and use loyalty cards using your palm. That's right, it's not enough that tech companies want your faces, fingerprints, and voice prints. Now tech companies are coming for your palms. Amazon is developing a terminal to let someone hover their palm over it and use it to pay. Considering this is a commercial application, I have to wonder how Amazon plans to get palm prints to begin with. I imagine there's some kind of registration process that needs to happen at a terminal, but I gotta be honest here, I'm not sure who's gonna be willing to hand over their palm print to Target just so they can get a red card. And yes, I just said hand over their palm print. I'm just full of wordplay this week, aren't I? Anyway, we might be getting to an uncomfortable threshold when it comes to biometrics. It's not exactly retina scans, but let's be honest, how far off is that at this point? Actually, it's honestly more likely that we'll all be implanted with microchips long before we have viable mass-produced retina scan technology. And is that better? Hell if I know, they both seem a little too minority report for my taste, but maybe Amazon is just forward thinking, or maybe Amazon is a secret police, could go either way. Elon Musk was none too happy about the media coverage of Battery Day. What was it that I said again? Tesla had its annual battery day this week, and coming from a company that is all about electricity, that could be pretty significant. Except it kind of wasn't. Elon Musk had no new batteries to show us, but they talked about batteries a lot, which I guess for a certain set of ears was probably interesting listening. Not my ears, but some ears. Yeah, stuff like that. And so why is that? Well, Electech tries to explain that batteries are not really all that interesting to consumers, and the media is there trying to find stories that appeal to, you know, consumers. More so, though, most of Musk's presentation centered around the manufacturing process of batteries, which, to a certain set of people, is really fascinating, but all of those people were already watching the Battery Days Festival, so the media was left again to try to find a way to make cobalt sound interesting. Manufacturing is probably a really fun thing to nerd out on on a weekday evening, but 
not a lot of people are doing that particular nerding. We want to see, you know, things on... Oh, it's battery day, you say. Oh, that's really great. Where are the batteries again? Or to put it more succinctly, here's the delightful Jeff Goldblum. Uh, now, eventually, you do plan to have dinosaurs on your, on your dinosaur tour, right? Hello? So, don't worry, Elon, we feel you. But it's hard to have a dinosaur tour when the dinosaurs don't show up. Maybe next year, call it Manufacturing Day. Just a thought. Do you remember back around CES time, Lenovo started showing off a foldable laptop? Well, you can pre-order that foldable laptop now. It'll cost you $2,499 for the privilege, just so you know. But when you think about it, it's really remarkable that Samsung's tiny folding tablet costs $2,000, but Lenovo's 13-inch folding laptop costs $2,500. And you can use a pen on it. In fact, Lenovo encourages it. With an optional, sold separately pen, because of course it's sold separately, it's like $100, but still, they encourage it. I asked Lenovo specifically about that, and I was told, quote, the screen is multiple layers, including two carbon fiber places and multiple layers with the screen to enable active pen Wacom AES writing. Not really sure that answers my question, but Lenovo did go to great lengths to talk about the carbon fiber backing to the screen, which makes it durable. Also in the same announcement came the ThinkPad X1 Nano, which is the lightest ThinkPad ever at just 1.99 pounds. That's kind of tiny, folks. The ThinkPad Nano uses 11th gen Intel Core processors and starts at a 13-inch 2K display size. Touchscreen is optional, which is kind of a bummer, but the laptop starts at just $13.99, and that's a lot of laptop to come in at just under two pounds. I'm in the market for a new PC myself now, and one laptop I looked at was a hefty five pounds. I mean, I could barely bench press five pounds, but the Nano sounds delightful, somewhere in line with the LG Gram, and that could be pretty awesome. Just keep being you, Lenovo, and I'm just going to keep on loving it. Speaking of which, we're going to be talking a lot of Lenovo in just a little bit, so stay tuned. Microsoft took the wraps off of a new Surface Laptop Go, not to be confused with the Surface Go tablet convertible thing. I say that because I actually confused them at first. Because how could you not get confused by that? Anyway, the laptop comes in at less than half of the aforementioned ThinkPad X1 Nano at just $549. But for that price point, you're getting a slightly better than 720p screen, a front-facing camera that's also only 720p, and it doesn't support Windows Hello. You're also getting a fairly small 4 gigabytes of RAM and 64 gigabytes of storage. If you want to step things up a bit, you can pay $699 for 8 gigabytes of RAM, 128 gigabytes of storage, and a fingerprint reader on the power button. This laptop is targeted at Chromebook shoppers, which is understandable, but $549 still isn't going to combat devices like, oh, I don't know, the Lenovo Duet? God, I'm such a Lenovo shill in this episode. I hope you find it in your hearts to work past it this week. I'm not going to be all rah-rah Lenovo every episode. In fact, not even all of this episode is rah-rah Lenovo, but that's a spoiler and I won't have it. What was I talking about? Oh, the Surface Laptop Go. It's a cute little device, but at 549 there are more powerful options out there. Do some shopping before you commit. Meanwhile, Microsoft also launched a sequel to last year's Surface Pro X called, creatively enough, the Surface Pro 
X. The new laptop comes with a SQ2 processor and 15 hours of battery life, which is great. The SQ2 is a variant of Qualcomm's 8CX processor minus the 5G. The 13-inch laptop starts at 16GB of RAM and 256GB of storage for $14.99. You can double the size of the SSD for $17.99. Having recently reviewed an ARM-based PC, and in fact, I'm actually writing this script on it, I can tell you that Windows 10 on ARM is not quite there yet, but Microsoft has promised additional support for 64-bit x64 apps in the future, so there is that. But all the same, I'm just not sure that ARM is there yet, and as I've always said, judge a PC based on what it does today, not what it might do tomorrow. The Hubble telescope captures photos from galaxies far, far away, and today, NASA released a time-lapse of a star in the middle of a supernova as it fades to nothingness. The star was located on the outskirts of a galaxy named NGC 2525, but which I'm going to call Herman. Herman is 70 million light-years away, which makes it cooler because that means the star actually went supernova 70 million years ago, and we're just finding out about it now. Now, the supernova is handy to scientists because supernovas of a star system like this are very predictable and have predictable brightness, and scientists can use the recorded brightness to determine how far away the supernova is, which helps determine how fast the universe is expanding. On that subject, I just finished reading Katie Mack's book titled The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, and I read a lot, a lot, about the expansion of the universe. Honestly, more than I ever really wanted to read about it. But anyway, these are very useful measurements, which is nice and all. But honestly, I just like watching time lapses of exploding stars. So more of that, please, Mr. Hubble. And finally, Ars Technica got a sneak preview of the live-action Mario Kart that we talked about a few weeks back. They're not hands-on yet, but they were able to take part in an online demo that showed how things work. Basically, you get the car and scan a QR code and connect the car to the Switch. You cannot play the game without the car, but then why would you want to? And then you set up your track simply by driving your car around the room. The track draws out virtually wherever you drive your car. You need to pass through four cardboard gates along the track in order to complete the track drawing. Then it's off to the races. And actually, the way that ours describes setting up the course sounds really intuitive and cool. I honestly wish my house had more room to do a track like this, but at this point, I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to test a robot vacuum for digital trends next week. Spoiler alert. Messy houses suck, especially when they're yours. But it looks like this live-action Mario Kart thing could be a thing. So if you don't have kids that regularly drop stuff on the floor and then walk away, then maybe you can give it a look. And now, let's talk about Google, because Google brought a lot with just a little. That's right, we got the Pixel 4a 5G, the Pixel 5, the new Nest Audio, and the new Chromecast, and we got it in just a hair over 30 minutes. Google absolutely killed it in the announcement department, sharing just the right amount of news in a nicely edited presentation with no cheese, no fancy special effects. Just Here's some stuff, and here's why you're going to like it. Google just barely edged out Apple as my favorite announcement of the year so far, and that's saying something. It's almost hard to summarize the Google announcement because it was already so brief, but I'll give it a shot. And I'm just going to go in the order that they did because why not?
we started off with a new Chromecast with remote and what Google is calling Google TV, which is the new Android TV. So, so long, Android TV. We hardly knew you. And fun fact, I've never had an Android TV, and now I guess I never will. Shame. Anyway, I'd like to say that Google TV looks new and innovative by searching for content across services like Google Assistant, but it's really basically the same as Apple TV with Siri. Watch Mandalorian on Disney+, and it'll open the show for you. And as much as assistants like to brag that they can integrate content from all platforms into one easy-to-use interface, most of them really can't, but it looks like this one might be able to do that, and that's next level. Max Weinbach went off on a two-minute love spree on Twitter the other night, and he was just like, this is great, and I love it, and watch this, I love this, oh, and watch this, I love it, I love it, and I love it. And you can love it, too. YouTube TV is running a promotion where if you are a new subscriber and you pay for more than one month in advance, you can get a free new Chromecast. So if you're going to pick one up, maybe pay an extra 15 bucks and get a month of YouTube TV at the same time. Moving on to Nest Audio, which is the replacement for the Google Home speaker, and just so we're on the same page as to how long overdue this is, I reviewed the original Google Home for Pocket Now. So... Yeah, it's been a while. Google brought on Mark Ronson, also it's been a while, to talk about how he loves the sound of money in his pockets. I mean, um, the sound of the Nest Audio speaker. The new speaker is rounded and about the same height, but with a fabric cover on the entire thing. It's kind of like a really tall Nest Mini. It's supposed to boast better sound, and I won't be getting one to test, and it's kind of Google's fault. I have so many Nest Minis around, and by the way, I haven't bought a single one. These are all sent to me from Google. I'm also not much of an audiophile, so I'm not really interested in the better sound. So Google basically gave away so many Nest Minis that I don't need another smart speaker. And if I'm totally honest, my wife would probably kill me if I brought another smart speaker into the house. By the way, I haven't told her that the two tablets I'm reviewing turn into smart screens, and don't you tell her either. Anyway, finally we get to the big potatoes, and that would be the Pixel 4a 5G and the Pixel 5. There were not a hell of a lot of surprises here. The Pixel 4a 5G adds a bigger screen and 5G and a bigger battery because of the 5G. The Pixel 5 is slightly smaller than the Pixel 4a 5G and slightly bigger than the 4a. Confused yet? The Pixel 5 adds a 90Hz refresh rate, slightly smaller battery than the 4a 5G, IP68 water resistance, and wireless charging. The Pixel 4a 5G comes in at $499, and the Pixel 5 at $699. Now, right off the bat, I'm going to slot in the 4a 5G pricing at just about right. $150 premium for 5G, a second camera, and a bigger screen sounds about right. But adding $200 more to that for a 90Hz refresh rate, IP rating, and wireless charging seems a touch munch. I was kind of thinking that the European price point of 629 euros, but you know, take away the euros part and put in a dollar sign part, was a bit closer. And here's the thing, a 599 price point is right on, because according to an article on Android Central, the only reason the Pixel 5 is 699 instead of 599 is because the Pixel 5 comes with millimeter wave technology built in, aka Verizon's crappy 5G that won't be ready for years, which from now on, I'm just going to call the $100 millimeter wave Verizon stupid tax. This article, written by Harish, holy crap, um, Harish, long a last name, huh? 
presents a fairly compelling evidence that this is the case. Exhibit A, the Pixel 4a 5G Verizon variant costs, you guessed it, $100 more than the unlocked version that doesn't have millimeter wave. And Exhibit B, the UK is selling a sub-6 only Pixel. And remember that European price point we talked about, 629 euro? So the Pixel's price tag is a straight-up Verizon stupid tax, and that pisses me off. Because overall, these seem like really nice phones, but I don't think I'm going to pick one up. The 4A 5G isn't necessary, like at all. I mean, the second camera is nice, but I honestly really like the screen size in the 4A, so I'm not really interested in the bigger screen. The Pixel 5 is harder to turn down. On the one hand, there's a lot there for double the price of the Pixel 4a, and I'm still debating grabbing one for review, and I honestly don't know where I'm going to land on it. I should know more soon, so stay tuned, but for now I'm in a holding pattern. What I can tell you is that the Pixel 4a is a great phone, and I'm hesitant to give it up because I would definitely have to sell it to justify the cost of a Pixel 5. I'm nervous about the battery life that won't hold up, for one. 5G is a power sucker, and honestly, I think being locked to LTE is what keeps the 4A going and going. Stay tuned. I haven't decided yet, but I will let you know. So those were Google's announcements. It was a great presentation, and honestly, I respect the fact that Google respected our time. And I appreciated the fact that it only cut into 20 minutes of the Cubs game, even if they did crap the bed in the seventh inning. That's a different conversation, though. So anyway, that's Google. Google was fun. Now let's talk about Lenovo. This week on the podcast, we have a look at a fun idea by Lenovo. It's the Lenovo SmartTab M10 FHD Plus with Alexa, and yes, that's the whole name. It's a mouthful, but anyway, Lenovo sent over two of these puppies, and originally I was going to do a comparison with the Amazon Fire HD8 Plus because the Lenovo tablet, once you pop it into the base, turns into an Amazon smart screen. So I thought, great, I'll do a nice little comparison like I did for the iPad versus the Duet because... You know, it makes sense. But then I started looking at the Lenovo SmartTab M10 FHD Plus with the Google Assistant. Yes, with the Google Assistant. Again, anyway. But what I didn't realize right off the bat was that these two tablets are basically the same. Just one switches to a Google Assistant smart screen when docked, and the other turns into an Amazon smart screen. And as much as I'd like to review the same tablet twice... That's not really helping you out. So we're just going to lump everything into one long review slash comparison slash whatever. Here's how I like this tablet segment. So I guess here's how I like this tablet. This is a 10.3-inch Android tablet, the one we referenced in the Chris Velasco interview we talked about a couple weeks ago. Here we are, and I think it's important that we get one thing out of the way. The primary use case for these tablets, not really the primary use case, but the niche that these tablets are trying to fill, is to dock them and have them become smart screens. And that part, well, it's actually not so good. We actually have two different issues, which is also kind of adorable. So... Let's start with the concept here because it's a little different for each. And just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to call these the Amazon and G tablets respectively because I'm surrounded by smart speakers here and I don't want them to go off all the always. So, yeah. Now, these two tablets approach their respective smart assistants differently by the way of the dock. The dock of the Amazon tablet is also a Bluetooth speaker. 
When you set the tablet into the dock, it takes a few seconds to connect to the speaker and you're off to the races. For the G tablet, no speaker, just a basically a plastic dock that holds the screen upright and charges. Clear? Clear. So now we're gonna talk about what's kinda going on here. First, with the Amazon tablet, every so often, like in my experience, once out of every five times you take the tablet out of a dock, the Bluetooth speaker just doesn't connect and it makes you try again and try again and try again and try again until you just say screw it and dismiss the screen. The only way I have found to reconnect the speaker once that happens is to actually unplug the dock and plug it back in to repair the tablet. It's not awesome. On the Google side of things, the dock works just fine, though I should say that the dock is just a couple of contacts in the center of a display and there's no ends on the dock to make sure you have it all lined up just right, and the result is it's easy to put the tablet into the dock and it just doesn't connect. Huh, so you adjust it a little bit and eventually you find the right position. Also, Google needs to do some work on its ambient display mode. I mean, it's fine, but it's not really exciting. I'd like to see the tablet actually mimic what I get on my <clears throat> okay, on my Lenovo smart screen, photo gallery scrolling, time, weather, stuff like that. Yes, there's a lot of Lenovo going on here, I get it. Anyway, what we get is a time display along with some smart home controls and notifications, which is nice, but you know, it's not more. On the Amazon side of things, you basically get a carbon copy of the Amazon smart screen, but the Lenovo version does solve a problem that I had with the Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus. You'll recall with that device, if I set it down on the dock without a video actively playing, it went to smart screen mode with no way to get out of it short of actually lifting it out of the dock. With the Amazon tablet, I can just swipe down and tap the icon in the notification tray to turn the smart display off and go back to what I was doing. The same button turns it back on as well, so it's kind of like smart screen on demand, which is awesome. Both of the tablets have issues with smart screen functionality, which is not a great start. Fortunately, the rest of the story, not so bad. So let's chat about the hardware. Both tablets have a 10.3 inch IPS LCD touchscreen with decent viewing angles, not the best, but I have definitely seen worse. They have narrow bezels around the sides for an 87-ish percent screen-to-body ratio. Again, it's not the narrowest, but it gives you a place to hold the thing, and that's important. In portrait, at the top, you've got a 5-megapixel front-facing camera, which is useful for face-unlocking the device. There's also a notification light at the top, and the top is where you'll find the headphone jack. On the right side, you'll find a volume rocker and power buttons. Below that, there's a SIM tray, so yes, this can be connected to your carrier, which was a fun surprise. On the bottom, you'll find a USB Type-C port, and on the left are charging pogos that the dock fits into. The tablet itself is very slim and comfortable to hold and carry. On the inside, you've got a MediaTek Helio P22T tablet processor, and we'll discuss the performance of the chip later. There's also 4GB of RAM and 64GB of onboard storage, expandable up to 256GB with a microSD card. There's an 8-megapixel camera on the back, which you should never use because it's a tablet, so that's all we're going to say about that. Overall, this is a very nice all-metal build, which feels really premium. About that notification light, though, there's an odd default behavior that you should know about. When the tablet drops to 15%, the notification light starts blinking red. And this is, well, it's a little confusing when you're laying in bed and suddenly the light comes on and you're like, 
Um, am I on a Zoom call? I don't remember being on a Zoom call because it's not unusual for a red light, especially when that red light is located next to a camera, to indicate that recording is going on. So after I dove under the covers and came up for air and then Googled, I found out that the red light indicates that the battery has dropped below 15%. My blood pressure, however, went the other way. Getting into the software, there are some highs and lows here. Right off the bat, this tablet ships with Android 9, which is... Yeah, I'd like to see Android 10 on here, let alone Android 11, but whatever, I guess. The look and feel of the software is fairly minimalist, close to stock Android, with one or two exceptions. The first exception is this Lenovo-branded entertainment shade, which only shows up when the tablet is in landscape. If you sign up with a Lenovo ID, this shade opens up to show you... YouTube videos, but they're not YouTube videos that you'd like, like those associated with your YouTube account. They're just a collection of YouTube videos that you may or may not want to watch. You get recommendations and whatnot, so that's nice, and I assume if you use this over a period longer than two weeks, that shade will learn your likes and feed you appropriate content. But on a tablet that actually has a YouTube app, not really sure why I need this, except maybe to get spam from Lenovo? All the same, it's easy enough to ignore. I'm not opposed to the idea of an entertainment shade, but put some other function in there, Lenovo. Come on, let's work with this. The second major diversion from Android comes in the form of the Productivity Navigation Bar. And this is not on by default. You turn it on in settings. And once you do, you get your standard home, back, and multitasking buttons. But you also get icons on apps that are open in the background, so you can very easily switch between them by tapping on them. They're like open apps in Windows or Mac or Samsung Dex. I love, love, love this feature, and I wish literally every other tablet, Apple or Android, had this. I didn't find an upper limit as to the number of apps that you can have open. I stopped counting at 14, and frankly, so should you. I love this functionality, though, in case that hasn't become obvious by now. Please, tablet makers, adopt this. The rest of the software throughout the tablet is fairly stock. One nice thing is the battery saver option. You can have the tablet stop charging when it reaches 60%, which is designed to help prolong battery life. Since the tablet is designed to sit on a charging dock, having a feature like this is... Um, oh, what's the technical term I'm looking for? Uh, oh, right. A good idea. As to the overall software app experience... Yeah, well, it's mostly just okay. As I talked with Chris Velasco about, the Android tablet software is fairly hit or miss in terms of apps that are actually designed for the tablet. There are very precious few of them. And this is one area where, compared to the Fire HD 8 Plus, is both better and worse. On the one hand, most Amazon apps are actually designed to be used on tablets to the extent that many of them are Android apps ported over to use Amazon Store SDK or whatever it dev has to do to make their apps work on a fire, I'm not sure. What you end up with is mostly apps that are designed to function with a tablet form factor. Whether or not they were originally designed that way, it's not always the case. On an Android tablet, most of the apps are basically phone apps that have been scaled up to tablet size. The result is a misuse of space in the best cases and outright ridiculous functionality in the worst cases. In short, the Android App Store is kind of a minefield in terms of apps and support. Now, some apps I downloaded work just fine. Others work in one orientation or the other, but not both. Some apps just don't plain work at all, with some app buttons actually going off the screen. Google would be well advised to put more strict regulations on what is and what is not a tablet app if it ever wants tablets to actually be a thing.
That being the case, the advantage of using all Android apps is a much wider variety of apps actually being available on the Lenovo tablet than its Amazon Fire HD 8 Plus counterpart. Basically, what I'm saying is I'd rather have millions of apps where 50% of them are bad rather than thousands of apps which all work mostly okay. Maybe you're not in the same mindset, and I get that, but for my money, I'm much happier in the Android ecosystem than the Amazon ecosystem. And a big part of that reason is the presence of Google apps like Assistant, YouTube, Gmail, Calendar, and more. Give me all of those, and I'll take my chances with the rest rather than not having those and just being sad. So overall, I'm calling software mostly a win, so let's head on over to performance. Overall, the performance on this tablet is on the slow side. Moving from task to task and particularly intensive apps causes stutters, and I feel largely that's due to the inertia problem that I talked about in my Duet review. That tablet, you'll remember, also sported a MediaTek processor. Now, before MediaTek fans get up in arms, I will admit that I've had good experiences with MediaTek Silicon as well, so you know, don't panic. Now, the Silicon is two and a half years old, having been announced in May of 2018, so yeah, it's kind of old. But putting that into perspective, it has aged fairly gracefully. Light games like Clash Royale, they're just fine, while heavier games like Call of Duty Mobile show some stutters here and there. I would not plan on playing Call of Duty Mobile or Fortnite or anything like that on this tablet. Overall, I was pleasantly surprised at the gaming performance, at least the Clash Royale part of it, not so much the Call of Duty part of it. Other app performances is not bad, and I mean that in the most literal sense. It's not a badly performing tablet, but I wouldn't venture so far as to say it's good either. It's honestly just okay. Like many tablets, it's a pretty good Netflix and content consumption box, but not really a creation box, but that's what your laptop and in some cases your phone is for. As for raw performance numbers, the tablet gets a Geekbench score of 163 single-core and 675 multi-core. That's a little lower than what you'll see on processors from the time that the Helio 22T came out, but not terribly so. By today's standards, those numbers are not really good at all, but again, how much power do you need in a consumption tablet that doubles as a smart screen? So where does that leave us? Well, again, I love what Lenovo is aiming for. The idea of a tablet that doubles as a smart screen is a great one. I don't know about you, but a lot of the tablets that I've used over the years end up getting tossed onto a bookshelf until I want to watch a movie, and only then do they get picked up. This idea keeps tablets relevant in between those use cases by controlling your smart home or getting information for you. It's just a shame that the execution is just a little off. But in a world of $600, $800, and even $1,000 Android tablets, Lenovo's offering at just over $200 is a pretty good one. Compared to the Kindle Fire HD Plus with charging stand at $140, this one is more expensive, but it's also more usable. So honestly, if I had a choice, I would get this one. There's just enough there to put it over the top. The Amazon Kindle is more durable, a bit smaller, easier to hold for things like reading, but in terms of overall functionality, I'll take the Lenovo tablet. And speaking of taking the Lenovo tablet, that leads me to some really cool news. Lenovo sent me a couple of extra tablets specifically to give away to my listeners, and so here I am. And entering the contest is simple. Between Cliff and I, we've got three phone reviews coming up in the next month or so. The next one is the Blue G90 Pro, and that's coming out next week. After that, I've got the T-Mobile Rebel 5G, and after that, Cliff has the Motorola Edge Not Plus. 
Each of these three phones will get a review, and each of them will have a U review segment. So to enter the contest, which will run through November 3rd, all you have to do is submit a question to the U review segment. I'm not going to be judgy on the questions themselves. Basically, if you send me or Cliff a question, you will get one entry. There are three phones coming up, so you can get up to three entries, one for each phone. As a reminder, you can send in you review questions either by filling out the contact form at benefitofadow.com slash contact or by emailing host at benefitofthedow.com. You can also send a DM either to my Twitter account at Dead Technology or Benefit of a Dowd's Twitter account at Benefit of Dowd. If you go the DM route, please include an email address where we can reach you if you win. So that's it. Just send in your questions about the Blue G90 Pro, the T-Mobile Rebel 5G, or the Motorola Edge Not Plus, and you might win a Lenovo tablet with Alexa or Google Assistant. Now for the downers. I'm sorry, but I have to limit this contest to the U.S. and to Canada. And that sucks, I know. Trust me, I know. But there are some countries out there where it would actually be cheaper for me to fly there and hand you the tablet than to ship it to you. Hell, Mexico is attached to the U.S. by land, but it's still over $100 to send something there. It's a little sick. So I'm sorry, U.S. and Canada only. I'm still a small podcast, and I appreciate your understanding. And no, you can't pick whether you get an Alexa tablet or Google tablet. I'll draw the names for each, and if you happen to get the one you want, congrats. If you don't, you still get a nice Android tablet. So that's it. I wish you all the best of luck, and I look forward to reading all of your questions. So start sending them in, and we'll all have some fun. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I would like to thank Lenovo for sending over the review units and for sending the extra contest units. I'm really excited to have this giveaway, so I really hope we get a lot of participation. I'd also like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, as always, I would like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>